Hi, I'm Alex. And I'm Tara. And this is Dream a Little Deeper, a critical retrospective on the Walt Disney Animation Studios films. And today we're talking about The Jungle Book. So the last time we did a good deep dive into Walt Disney Productions outside of the animation department was in our episode on Lady and the Tramp. We talked mostly about the creation of Disneyland and its financial impact, and we also talked about Walt's television show on ABC and the creation of the company's own distribution arm. I've mentioned a lot in the previous episodes that Walt pulled away from the animation department so he could pursue these other projects. Remember, this starts after the 1941 animator strike, and Walt is only encouraged to pull away more by the shrinking interest in cartoon shorts nationwide. At this point, Disneyland was open and operating as smoothly as a theme park can at this point. So with that in mind, what was Walt working on, and how is this affecting the company as a whole? I've mentioned before that Walt worked closely with his brother Roy, but I've never really gone into the history or their dynamic all that much. And, you know, you might call that an oversight on my part, and maybe it is. But a lot goes on between the two after the release of The Sword in the Stone and before the release of The Jungle Book. So I figure now is the best time to kind of bring them up and explain what's going on here. The common cultural conception of the brothers is that Roy is the money guy while Walt is the ideas guy. Roy oversaw the banks, investments, and film releases. He supervised foreign sales, made abroad visits, and was the one who faced the board of directors and the stockholders. Meanwhile, Walt continued his tours of Disneyland, trying to find ways to improve the park. He spent a lot of time in WED, which is the second company he created at this point that made attractions for the theme park. But he enjoyed finding new ways to improve it. In fact, he goes on the record to say that, quote, That's what I like most about Disneyland. I can always keep plussing it. I never have to be finished with it, end quote. More often than not, Walt's big, expensive ideas stressed out Roy as he tried to keep the company afloat financially. In the 1930s and 40s, when Walt Disney Productions was just beginning, the brothers worked closely together. But after Disneyland's opening, they rarely saw each other, simply because they were busy with their different tasks. And a bit of hostility was forming between them as well. Um, a lot of this brewed from the fact that Walt refused to go to stockholders' meetings, which made Roy really upset. But in 1963, a bigger issue came up that nearly destroyed the brothers' relationship. Walt created the company called Walt Disney Miniature Railroad in 1950 to manage a railroad that he built in his backyard. However, by 1952, he changed the name to Walt Disney Incorporated and wanted to use it to support his television show, which he was producing to fund the Disneyland parks, as I've mentioned. But instead, he created and designed an engineering division and put all of the rights to the transportation in the parks under this company. So park railroads, the monorail, think of that kind of stuff. Walt also makes it so WDI owns the rights to his name and likeness. So that means Walt gets 5 to 10% of all the Disney Productions merchandise sales as his own income. <laughs> so Roy never liked how he did this because he felt that Walt Disney Incorporated was just another facet of Walt Disney Productions, and he worried that the stockholders wouldn't like it and then would pull out their funding. So Roy and Walt agreed to change the name of... Walt Disney Miniature Railroad to WED in 1953, so it wasn't as obvious that the company was named after Walt, even though it's his initials. However, that didn't stop a shareholder, Clement Melancon, from taking the deal to court because he felt Walt was illegally funneling profits. 
surprise, surprise. Both parties agreed to a settlement in 1955. So Walt's out some money, um, but nothing about the 1953 agreement really changes. Um, but this does cause a major rift between the brothers, so much so that the employees of the company became divided, some supporting Walt and some supporting Roy. And this is going to come into play later on in our next episode. So the agreement Walt and Roy reached in 1953 was set to expire in 1963, which is where we are now in our chronological watching. Roy decided it was time WED was acquired into the larger Walt Disney Productions. Walt obviously did not like this idea at all. So both brothers like hired lawyers. They went to court over the matter. There was a lot of yelling, a lot of passive aggressive, like tell my brother this in a memo and then tell my brother that in the response memo. It was really ugly. This is bypassed passive aggressive. <laughs> this is just spiteful. Full aggressive. Uh, the legal battle ended in an explosive argument and it left the two brothers like not speaking to each other at all. Like memos are gone at this point. They ended up creating a new 10-year contract. Basically, Walt would continue to get the royalty money and the ownership of the trains and the monorails, but the studio still bought WED and named it to Retlaw Enterprises, which is Walt's name spelled backwards. <laughs> this feels like a bit. This I know. feels like a bit. But it's not. <laughs> Oh my this God. is not a bit. This is real. My distaste for this man grows the more <laughs> we talk about him. So, <laughs> I wanted to bring up this story, not only to show how particular Walt was about his image, but also establish a point in Walt and Roy's relationship. So remember where they're at. We'll get to this in a minute. So Walt is spending more time in WED slash Retlaw in the 1960s. He has two park-based projects on his mind. He wanted to create a second theme park on the East Coast and make his Epcot project a reality. Again, if this was a Disney Parks podcast, I'd go into the whole vision behind Epcot and the whole history behind that. But for simplicity's sake, it stands for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. It wasn't going to be a theme park in the original conception like it is now. Um, it's actually more a place where people could live and a place where companies could display their new tech for people to check out. Everyone would travel by monorail or people mover. No one would have a car. Uh, the city would also be in like this climate bubble. It really gave me like the Stark Village vibes that they in like early Iron Man movies and that's also because I wrote this as I was watching those movies, so that's probably why. So kind of think of that. Walt eventually decided that Epcot would go with the East Coast Park and also decided to build it in Orlando because he could get more space for a lower cost there. Um, he could buy four sites that range from 10,000 to 100,000 square feet, giving him the space he needed to actually build the city. As plans came together and this East Coast Park became more and more of a reality, Walt was kind of supportive of the project because he saw how much money Disneyland made the company. But Rory began to realize that Walt Disney Productions would have to somehow find the money to build all of it. He seriously considered retiring after the whole WED slash Law debacle, but seeing how much work needed to be done, he felt like he couldn't retire. Now, there's a few other things about some of the inner financial workings of the company I wanted to bring up. So from the 1950s through the 1970s, Walt Disney Productions would consistently send shares of the company to Republican candidates 
and then those candidates would sell them to fund their campaigns. At one point, Roy mentioned that he donated $5,000 with a stock to fund Republican candidates. Um, I also found an interesting encounter between Roy and the IRS. Um, so basically, in March of 1961, the Disneys went on this like three-month trip across the world, and Roy decided he could deduct all his wife's, wife's expenses on his income tax. <laughs> So by 19 oh. <laughs> So by 1966, the IRS ordered Roy to pay $4,245 because of those deductions. So of course he took it to court um and you know did a lawsuit and all that and basically the court decided roy didn't have to pay the money because roy argued that the trip served to enhance the company's image abroad <laughs> but this argument didn't work when he tried to do something similar a few few years later and he like lost that lawsuit but still like this was something that happened <laughs> Anyways, back on this park. With his focus on the East Coast Park, Walt began to rely on his producers more in the animation department to lead film production. However, Walt denied them the credit that other producers were receiving at other studios at the time. In 1964, Card Walker said producers should get credit for their work in the annual report at Walt Disney Productions. However, Walt vetoed it out of the desire to maintain his image. In his mind, putting Ken Anderson's name on a picture had the potential of breaking down the image of Walt Disney as the founder, inspiration, and face of the whole company, which was something that he's basically been working to establish since the very beginning. Well, um, if you should have helped make those movies then, I don't know what to tell you. I know. There was also an expressed desire that putting his name on all the features created cohesiveness. Uh, there were so many people working on the films that he didn't want to confuse the public or have them think that all of a sudden Walt didn't have his hand in the animated films. <laughs> you can't see he how... He doesn't, though! <laughs> you can't see how they're reacting, but it's great. He doesn't have a hand, because uh, he's all fucking around with his fucking big-ass profitable train sets that's all the parks are to him um but at the same time again this only works to reinforce the image of walt disney that has been created that we've been talking about on this podcast you know the man who doesn't really compensate his workers fairly financially or credentially like all this is just basically reiterating everything we've been saying since day one it's just i i found it in a book this time instead of all together in one little (sighs) bit not that I didn't find the other things in books. I found all these things in like books and stuff, but (laughs) it's fine. (laughs) Okay. So during the 1960s, Walt also worked on live action movies and went to Europe to watch the filmings. Specifically, Walt became particularly invested in the 1964 film, Mary Poppins. Film and Disney historian Bob Thomas calls it Walt's child. But the live-action films after Mary Poppins were not as popular. Remember, this is the early to mid-1960s at this point, so there's a lot of civil unrest around the country with protests against the Vietnam War and the growing civil rights movement. Disney notably did not address any of these social movements in his live-action films, and different scholars, especially those in the PBS Walt Disney documentary, say he kept hidden the realities of the current America of the time. Now, some people liked this, saying his movies were a, quote, sanctuary of decency and health, end quote. But critics said feeling was ignored in his films, that his films show the imagination of childhood bludgeoned with mediocrity, that they had no distinct ethnicity or diversity. Uh, Therefore, Walt and his company get identified with a white, middle-class, Protestant value system. And that's something we're going to see continue forever, basically. (laughs) It doesn't end. 
However, we see a bit of a shift in Walt's priorities after the release of The Sword in the Stone in 1963. As I mentioned last episode, this film was created really without Walt apart from the script approval at the very beginning, which he didn't even do from Los Angeles. However, the film had a lackluster release, and some animators attributed this to the lack of the Disney touch. This, coupled with Walt's dislike of the movie, motivated him to kind of do a 180 when it came to his managerial style in the animation department. He decided that with this next animated picture, he was going to be more hands-on than before with the story development. For the third time in a row, Bill Pete is tapped to lead the story development. After the release of The Sword in the Stone, he told the higher-ups that he wanted to do a more character-driven piece and suggested The Jungle Book. Walt, remembering Pete's success with 101 Dalmatians, is down and gets him the rights. Walt wanted it to be a serious film, close to Kipling's version with a Bambi Van- Fantasia Disney formalist look. So, oh, buddy. <laughs> So Pete reads the book and turns out a pretty dark draft that is very true to the source material. So when you look at the book and Pete's narrative, the big difference is that the book is episodic and the movie takes a more linear, straightforward story. Pete also created his own character, King Louis, who enslaved Mowgli at one point, and the script has a fairly dramatic conclusion. So after Mowgli gets to the man village, he would get into an argument with this hunter from the village. He's in the book. Um, And that argument would cause him to return to the jungle with a torch, which he would use to scare those who attacked and mocked him throughout the journey. Then the hunter would drag Mowgli around in search for treasure. Um, After recovering most of the treasure, the hunter would declare his intentions to burn the jungle to avoid the threat of Shere Khan, only for the tiger to attack um, the hunter. So the hunter dies, but then Mowgli kills Shere Khan. Uh, Mowgli would then be hailed as the hero of both the jungle and the village, and is declared the first human to be part of the wolves' council. Additionally, for this draft, Terry Gilkinson wrote a few songs for the movie, including The Bare Necessities, which will end up making it to the final film, but none of his other songs would. Walt's reaction to Pete's draft has different accounts. In some, Walt takes a look, and he doesn't like how intense Pete's draft is, finding it more morose, spooky, mysterious, and ultimately not liking a lot of the bad things that happened to Mowgli. Walt insists Pete makes the movie more family-friendly, Pete refuses, feeling Walt's ideas were wrong, and leaves the studio. But according to Pete, Walt really liked everything he came up with, from the story to the few storyboards he drew, and even the song The Bare Necessities. Pete says what really caused him to leave the studio was when he began selecting voice actors. Walt didn't like the actor chosen for the leopard because he had a Brooklyn accent. Pete said he'd ask the guy to try and do the lines again, but Walt still didn't like it. So Walt sat in the meeting, still pissed, asked Pete if he could animate the movie himself because he's so angry about it. Pete responded by saying, why not? And the conference goes silent. (laughs) So Walt leaves the meeting, fuming, turned to Pete and said, quote, if you want to see some real entertainment, then go see Mary Poppins, end quote. So... The other people in that conference room gave Pete the silent treatment on the way out, and Pete decided, you know, I'm just not going to deal with this. At this point, he was already a fairly successful children's book author on the side and decided that Walt's controlling nature was just not worth the stress. Go for him. (laughs) 
So while researching more on Bill Pete's decision to leave the company, I found his autobiography and an interview he did that sheds a rather fascinating light on the company in its earlier years. I kind of wish I found it earlier, um, especially for like the Snow White and Pinocchio episodes. Um, I will say the Disney company did give a once over on the autobiography, but he says that was mostly so that he can include certain drawings to avoid copyright strikes. Um, So now we're going to hop back in time a little bit and just kind of go over some more things. So background on Pete, he joined the company in 1937 as an in-betweener. Like many animators in the early days, he did not get credit for his work on Pinocchio and continued to go uncredited for his work for the next two years. He said when it came time for the studio to give credit, the nine old men decided who got screen credit and oftentimes would only give it to themselves and their inner circle of close friends. Pete said the other workers did not complain because they knew that really, at the end of the day, Walt's name was the only one that mattered on the picture. He mentioned terrible contracts and difficult bosses that despised workers who were more talented than them. He confirmed that he would have to work nights and weekends to get Snow White complete in time and that he was never paid for it. He was part of the 1941 animator strike, saying he didn't like the pay inequality, the weekend work without pay, the lack of sick pay, and no screen credit. Pete also recounts a time he came to work while sick with the flu because he couldn't afford to take a day off. Pete felt especially bitter about it because, quote, Walt couldn't do any of the things he was famous for, like drawing and writing. Pete says he was always a manager. Finally, Pete challenged the common conception of the Nine Old Men, saying he didn't like how the company marketed the group of men because it created the impression that nine people ran the studio when really animation was more of a communal process. But at the same time, he says that what the Nine Old Men said went. They could do no wrong. So, while demanding that Pete change his draft of the Jungle Book adaptation and Walt's difficult nature were just the final straws for him. Pete knew that he could make it as an author and just decided to leave. Walt handed off the screenplay to the story department and they made the changes. Larry Clemens headed the project. Disney ended up buying all 13 stories from Rudyard Kipling's 1894 book, but the movie ends up covering only the first half of the book. Floyd Norman, who we talked a bit about last episode, helped write the movie and said Walt had no remorse over Pete leaving. Walt refused to let them read the book for the new draft, and as a result scrapped most of the original concept except for Pete's characters and their personalities. They cut that hunter out entirely and replaced a buzzard character for singing vultures. Walt wanted the Beatles to voice them and have them sing a rock ballad, but those plans fell through so they became a barbershop quartet. Additionally, Baloo becomes more happy-go-lucky instead of serious. In general, the characters become more caricatures of their voice actors. Walton Clemens also think of this new ending for the film, where Mowgli sees a girl, and that's the reason he returns to the man village. Uh... <laughs> Animators Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston didn't love the idea, thinking it was an easy out for an ending, but Walt was like super happy with himself and really impressed with himself when he came up with the idea, so obviously that's why it made it into the film. <laughs> Wolfgang Reitherman returns to solo direct the film. The Sherman brothers replaced Terry Gilkinson as songwriters. They wrote all the songs for the movie, except The Bare Necessities, as I mentioned before. And fun fact, the song Trust In Me is actually a scrap song from Mary Poppins called Land of Sand. Similar to how he was during the early years of Walt Disney Productions, Walt becomes the hyper type A manager that has a hand in every single aspect of production. Every decision needed his approval. Animation historian Michael Barrier called it a one-man studio environment. The company began animating in 1966 and continued to use xerography under Ken Anderson's leadership. 
Animators were in charge of whole sequences for this movie instead of specific characters, since there's a lot of interaction in the film. Backgrounds were hand-printed, with the exception of the waterfall. To create the depth of field that we see in the older films, scenery was used in the foreground and the background. And here's a fun fact, the wolf cubs that we see in the beginning are based on the puppies from 101 Dalmatians. So this is the, the, the beginnings of this recycled animation that we are gonna really see a lot of in this Xerox era, specifically in the 70s. And elements of this film would later be recycled in Robin Hood, as Baloo is basically Little John, and Baloo and King Louis' dance is the same as Little John and Lady Cluck's dance. Floyd Norman says Wart was swapped out for Mowgli, and their animation was pretty much the same. The common conception is that this tactic allows the studio to save money, but Norman claimed the opposite was true. He went on the record to say reusing scenes never saved money, but were a pain to do, and that adapting earlier sequences was more difficult than just starting from scratch. Norman claims this is all Reetherman's idea and that he would do it whenever he could. While animators worked on animating The Jungle Book, Disneyland is growing, now employing 3,300 people versus opening with 900. Walt worked on making the East Coast Disney project a reality and is entertaining a proposal from General Electric as a corporate backer to pay for the estimated $100 million to build it. Spoiler alert, Walt fears GE taking over the majority stock ownership and getting fired. So he doesn't go through with it, but he did consider it for a while. There are a few labor things happening during this time. Uh, Roy almost lost most of his staff in the 1960s. Film historian Bob Thomas says that while at this point many animators and artists were now receiving salaries above the average for cartoon studios, all other workers were severely underpaid. Apparently, Walt didn't want to pay them more because he felt they didn't possess a specific talent that warranted it. To get his staff back, Roy lowered the number of years when employees could be given a pension. Meanwhile, there was a bit of animosity brewing at the company regarding gender equality. There was a woman named Heidi Grudel. She was a... Um, lady in ink and paint who ended up becoming one of the first animators um first female animators i should say she and another female trainee filed a complaint in 1966 about the penthouse club basically the club was a men only space and women were only allowed up there for big occasions heidi was able to file this complaint because of the 1964 equal opportunity commission which basically was a federal agency that worked to end workplace discrimination so basically Heidi filed the complaint hoping that women could get their own space, and in response to the complaint, Disney basically just shut down the club. So all the men resented all the female animators from this point on. Fun times. Real fun. Real healthy. Real healthy work so environment. Healthy. While there's bits of turbulence within the workforce, Walt and Roy managed to fix their relationship issues by 1966, and were working closer and better together than they had in previous years. They don't use intermediaries anymore which is a big step, and Roy works with Walt to find a way to pay for the Florida park. Now, if you're any kind of Disney historian, you'll know what happens next. While animators worked on The Jungle Book, Walt went on a cruise to Canada with his kids and grandkids, and Roy noted that when he returned, he wasn't looking so good. But Walt kept to his busy schedule, working at Retlaw, going to Jungle Book meetings, and going on trips to visit the Florida Project. One of the workers notes Walt became more serious and stopped having fun with his projects. His health got worse, and doctors said he needed a surgery to fix a calcification in his neck. 
during the surgery, they found a walnut-sized spot in his lung. Sure enough, he had cancer, and doctors gave him six months to live. Two weeks later, he returned to work and spent most of his time at Rutlaw, but didn't work for long. A few weeks went by before he had to return to the hospital after Thanksgiving. Walt died a few weeks later, on December 15th, 1966. was absolutely shocked by the news. The company never mentioned to the public that Walt had cancer or let the press know how bad his health was. So the announcement for the public, even to some family members, was sudden. Roy was absolutely heartbroken. His family was stunned, saying they felt like Walt was some mythical being and that he'd be around forever, so not having him around didn't feel right. His death shocked the company as well. It began to operate by committee, which allowed Roy to establish new leadership. The first goal of the company was to bring Walt's final projects into development. Uh, This included the movie The Happiest Millionaire and The Pirates of the Caribbean and The Haunted Mansion rides for Disneyland. Walt was also developing a ski resort in Mineral Kingdom, but the company scrapped those plans and used the animatronics for the Country Bear Jamboree attraction in Disneyland. Basically, the resort needed support from the state and federal government, but it got hit with a lawsuit, so Walt gave up on the project, and the land was incorporated by the Sequoia National Park in 1978. Roy takes it upon himself to make sure the Florida Park and the CalArts program become a reality, and we'll go into more detail about these projects in later episodes. The stocks did rise after Walt's death. Wall Street experts believed it was because people were hoping that the company would be taken over after Walt's death and therefore the company's divisions would be sold off. But Walt Disney Productions goes into a bit of a depression period for the next year. Roy makes no progress on the East Coast Park, the company didn't pursue new projects, and many of the veteran animators leave. There's this question of whether Disney animation would ever recover. The company's executives even discussed phasing out animation for good. But that plan was put on hold, at least for the time being, because of The Jungle Book's reception when it premiered in October 1967. With a budget of $4 million, the film made $11.5 million by 1968. But the film wasn't just a financial success. Critics praised it. Time Magazine said it's not the original, but delightful and a happy way to remember Walt. Howard Thompson from the New York Times said it's simple, straightforward fun. Life called it the best thing since Dumbo, and the LA Times said it was really, really good Disney indeed. Nowadays, historians believe the reviews were clouded by the nostalgia of Walt following his death, and it was the last animated picture that he directly oversaw. It's not the last animated project he approved, though. We'll get into that in our next episode. But oddly enough, it wasn't just big in the United States. It ended up becoming Germany's most successful film, yes, film, not just animated film, of all time. It had 27.3 million ticket sales, which is nearly 10 million more than the movie Titanic, which is the second most successful film in the country. The success is tied to irreverent German musicians and cabaret artists who adapted the original Disney songs to suit their culture. Additionally, Henrik Reifmuller had full control over the German translation. Usually, films were dubbed into serious high German with correct pronunciation, but Reifmuller's translation embraced slang, local dialect, and irreverent humor, which appealed to the growing hippie counterculture of the time. 
To this day, The Jungle Book is one of the 35 films in the country's official film canon that German schools and universities used to teach. Other films on this list include Taxi Driver and Vertigo. What the fuck? I know, right? <laughs> Where'd you find this? It was like a random article I when I was just doing some last minute research. I think it was Variety. Um, let me hmm. see if I can find it. I mean, it's here somewhere. Um, but I think it originally came from the Wikipedia page, and I was like, I need to make sure this is a thing. Um, and so I looked That's at it. Weird. Yeah, the Hollywood Reporter. That's bizarre. Isn't it crazy? But I thought it was so. That's I just so had to weird. mention it. Yeah, like more famous than Titanic, Avatar, and Star Wars. I don't know if it's more famous. It's more profitable for sure. But yeah, but like that's bizarre. And it's interesting too because it's like it, they were explaining it because of like currency and things like that. They couldn't really do it by how much it made, right? But so they, they had to do it by ticket sales. sales. But still, like, but and then the fact that they're like, yeah, we teach this film. It is considered. Yeah, I the mean, canon. It, I mean, that's generally how you like. Money is one thing because, like, but like that's. That's why, like, if you look at uh, profitability of, like, popularity of films here by ticket sales versus money, like, yeah, sure, Disney has, like, the top ten grossing films of all time, but as soon as you flip that for ticket sales, Gone with the Wind blows everything out of the water still. Right. I, can say, I, I still think ticket sales are a better way to judge everything. So uh, there you go. Yeah, God, what a fuck. That's fucking wild. I should That's also insane. specify, it is the uh, most ticket sales as of 2016 when the article was written. Okay, so, so it might it, it might be out of date by this point. It might, but still, like it would be, it would be like, at least it would be up there. Like I would imagine, still top three. Yeah, because like if Titanic is number two, and that's ten million less. That's insane. Than the Jungle Book, like I don't know what could top that. That's weird. Okay, now I gotta look it up. Okay. Yeah, it's still the Jungle Book. <laughs> what the fuck. <laughs> Jungle Book, based on the, the 1890 book. something book by Rudyard Kipling. I did not read this because I do not care. I mean, I know, I feel like you know a little bit more about the book than I do, or at least just like what it, I know nothing. I'd like, I, I, I know enough to know Kipling was an imperialist. So is he so, an English author then, or like yeah. a okay? Yeah, let me let me do a quick Google just okay. to be one hundred percent sure because I know he wrote like the man who would be king mm-hmm. and stuff like that, which is all very much. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say British imperial propaganda, but it's at the very least British imperial apologist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like because I think that's the one where like the 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 crazy old guy like puts them all in the isolated environment and they get hunted after or something no no that's the most dangerous game ah the man who would be king is basically a, a british man who goes to uh either india or one of those you know quote-unquote less civilized countries and declares himself king mm-hmm. and fucking gets what's coming to him mm Oh, if you're familiar with the concept of the of the white man's burden. Ah! <laughs> yeah, Rudyard Kipling uh, coined the term. Okay, that's where I've heard his name before then. Because I'm like, I wrote a research paper and it had something to do with him. Makes sense. Yeah. 
apologies for the sniffles again. I fucking cleaned, so it stirred up a bunch of stuff. Uh, yeah, ones in future. The the man who would be king is basically a a story of uh two men who, while on a tour with some Indian natives, uh, decide they're gonna become kings of the kings of this area. And it doesn't go particularly well for them. It's uh, yeah, he's a, he's a weird dude. He's a he's a interesting figure to dissect. But yeah. uh, all all any most of the edges are shaved off for this movie. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say like, it's interesting because the very first line of narration is something about the strange tales of India, um, yep. or the legends in India are strange. And so it immediately, like, in terms of, like, the text, the literal words that they are saying are like, this is in India, but nothing about this, you know, maybe, like, maybe the jungle scenery, I've never been to India, so I can't say, but, like, everything right. about this feels like it could really take place anywhere. Right. It is an it is the exotic jungles of India. E- emphasis on exotic. Mm-hmm. Like, they're strange, they're dangerous, and they're unknowable to man. Um, I am Daniel Santoy. I am a director for a local news station. I am also a part-time voice actor and part-time professional wrestler. So I'm introducing Daniel here at this point in the podcast because he noticed an odd Easter egg in the film, and it relates to what Tara and I are saying about the film and the way it depicts India. Also, did anyone notice Bambi's mom in the middle of the Jungle Book? What? No? Like, so I was... I was looking especially for, like, repeated things. Because I know that's a, that's a thing in this era. And... Shere Khan is hunting. And he looks through the grass... And there is a deer. And I would not recognize the deer, except that we watched Bambi just like two or three weeks ago. And it's Bambi's mom <laughs> in the Jungle Book about to be killed by Shere Khan. And then he gets distracted with something. And thank goodness, because we don't have to watch Bambi's mom die again. But it's it's totally in there. What? Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Goodbye, iPhone buying list. <laughs> Is Bambi's mom in... The... Oh, my God. I hate this. Hold up. Hold I up. I hate this. Yes! I hate this. Quick cameo. Exactly. Oh my it happened, God. and I was like, what the hell am I looking at? <laughs> I hate this. Yes. Also, are there deer in India? I'm... Not sure. <laughs> well, that's what I was wondering. Like, because the, well, the American white-tailed deer, no native <laughs> animal to India. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing because they like specifically base the deer and Bambi off of like deer that are native to Maine or somewhere up in the Northeast. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. my god. There's there's another there's another animal in there that I saw for just like a split second. And I was like, I don't think that that's an animal in India. What did they put and, the Dumbo crows in here too? <laughs> well, there are like the vultures. Yeah the the vultures. Um. 
I think it might have it might have been the wolves. Mm. I was like, are those the wolves that would be in India? Are there wolves in India? I'm sure there's some sort of wolf in India. I feel like there has to be, um, but I don't know that they would look like wolves from know. around here. Yeah, they kind of do. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The Indian wolf. Um, there's about. As of 2004, it is estimated that there are around 2,000 to 3,000 Indian wolves in the country. So not a ton, but like, especially for considering the size of India, but they're like that. There's they, there's a type that's, that's that like bluish gray color, it looks like. Hmm. Um, okay. I'd have, I can't remember what they look like off the top of my head, so I'd have to do a side-by-side comparison, but color-wise, it's on brand. So there okay. you go. That's what I learned today. There are wolves in India. (laughs) We are an educational podcast. Hey, we just love to teach the people with our... uh, (laughs) Incredible. You know, all the characters have very... Stereotypically, I don't want to say stereotypical, but very like their names from the book, right? Like, yeah. Um, but then you have these very American voices voicing them, and you're like, this Except feels for the dis- parts where they're very obviously British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The vultures. And really, that's what you jump to. Okay, that's what I jumped. To. Well, the the sold the vultures and Shere Khan the elephants. Oh right. Oh, yeah. British imperialism. The, yep. <laughs> the literal so, militarized elephants. Real quickly, in case someone is listening and has not heard of the term imperialism, which could be the case, do you have like a... De- I can pull up a definition if you don't... Let me see. Uh, we, should, we should define our terms, but like... If you're friends with either of us, you've heard the word before. If yeah, but that's assuming us, that they're friends with yeah. us. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Well, that's not. That's a little unfair because at this point, if you've listened this long, you're a friend of the pod. It's all good. <laughs> you are our friends. You are okay. our friend. So here we go. Imperialism is a policy or ideology of extending the rule over peoples and other countries um, for extending political and economic access, power, and control, often through employing hard power especially military force but also soft power and that is the wikipedia definition so it's basically this idea imperialism is imperialism is essentially the the process by which you create why the process by which a state expands outwards past its borders to Mm -hmm. to to like expand its territory and eventually uh, quote-unquote hopefully become an am- become an empire. Yes. So, um in the context of British imperialism, which is what the book I would say is focused on, you know, think about like how there were British troops like in India, in Australia, you know, like just kind of planted all across the country in and again like forcing their power, forcing their rule of law on people who are not part of that culture. And it's all, and it's typically done like for economic purposes, you know, like th- that's the intention. Like you go because this area has like a resource that the country who is exerting the force wants and then kind of turns into like a 
you know, as the definition said, you know, it's not just for economic purposes, but also political and also exerting your control over another body of people. Yeah. You might remember Jenna from our episode on 101 Dalmatians. She also noted the white voice acting cast and tied it in with the film's theme of colonialism. This has nothing to do with like the movie as a whole, but like the time that the movie was shot. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the movie is white. <laughs> so even I mean, like it makes sense that like you know the buzzards are white because they're supposed to be like the Beatles, but also but like Mowgli is a Indian boy, or at least a boy from like you know that region of the world. Even though I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be India. Yes, also, the exotic jungles of India. Yeah, um, he's a white man. What uh, what makes him a white man? Like wh- like why do you say that? What do you mean? No, like no, I mean like the, his voice actor oh, okay, is okay. a white man. I don't yes. like Mowgli is a little brown boy, but his voice actor is a white man. Yeah, I don't like I, I don't really know. I mean, I know why he's a white man. It's the sixties and it's Disney. Like there's no re- there's no way they're gonna like go and find you know. Um, an Indian man to voice um, Mowgli or any of the other characters. I mean, the elephants, the elephants can be white because they're supposed to be like the military, and so that kind of makes sense, even though it's problematic. Um, I don't like, but like, I also don't like that aspect of it either. It's like it's just a lot of it's the movie. Okay, it's made in America because it's a Disney movie, but it's a very British movie. Because it's very much like everyone in the movie is British and it's very British Columbia, like not British Columbia, British colonization. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's very much like this colonization. It's like all over this film, but like, you know, we have the songs and the happiness and, you know, Mowgli being Mowgli, and you're not going to notice that like every person in this film is British um, and in India. So, like, yeah, the crown jewel of the British Empire, as, you know, Queen Victoria would have said. Um, So yeah, that's kind of problematic. Tara and I weren't the only ones who noticed the themes of imperialism in The Jungle Book. Diana said it's one of the reasons they don't like the film. Oh, I just found out, I just remembered a movie I also don't like. I don't like The Jungle Book. That's totally fair. Not one of my favorites. I mean, it's an empire dealing with (laughs) British British imperialism in India. Yeah. No, and, I think I think Well there's that yeah. and like I just don't like the animation style, the songs make me uncomfortable and like and it like and no. Not not my favorite. Anyway. So and the point and I guess that is at least one of the facets that the content warning was talking about in the very beginning. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm not so sure that the Disney Plus content warning is saying, hey, imperialism is bad. I think it's saying, like, hey, uh, this isn't great towards uh, people from India. <laughs> right. Um, because something tells me the Walt Disney Corporation does not exactly have negative views on the concept of imperialism. Uh, but yeah, it was... Uh, <laughs> I opened this movie on Disney+, Plus. was greeted with the content warning, was like, ah, yes, my old friend has returned <laughs> once again. It's been like... It's been a minute. It's been... 
th- three at least. Yeah, Lady three. and the Tramp, I think, was the last one. Yeah, so then the, without we didn't have it for Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, or Sword in the Stone. Yeah. Yeah, it was the very first thing I wrote in all caps. I was like, ah, yes. Yeah. So you mentioned it's not very nice toward people from India. Explain. Well, it's hard to say, right? Because like there's what we see one other person other than Mowgli and she's singing about domestic expectations and gender roles. Um but I don't know. It 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 feels like this movie is just like exoticizing India writ large. Mm-hmm. Uh and it's like it it, it feels very othered like it's like this is a place where like people aren't and even if there are people we can't like necessarily view them because they are even to the animals and to Mowgli exoticized they are othered Mm -hmm. um which puts the entire people like all the people of India in that position for the viewer as well because they've gone so long without seeing another person it's like oh man is different. Yeah. Well, and I thought it was in interesting. And oh. it's in a very different way than Bambi does it, where like Bam- or Bambi treats like man as a force of nature, as a threat. And like that's kind of gestured at with Shere Khan being like, I don't like man, I don't like guns, I don't like fire, which are all very reasonable fears to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but like with the way that they're talked about as di- like so far away and so distant, it kind of... And because of the fact that they specifically said it in India, it's doing that to the Indian people. Mm-hmm. And it's not great. And kind of going off of that, one thing I noticed that I thought was very odd was how um, these animals in the jungle have very human systemic operations that structure how they go about life. So, like, the elephants marching along and acting like they're in the military, you know, you're like, okay, well, this is something that's very innately human, right? Mm -hmm. And yet it's the animals who are the ones who are going through with it. You know, they're the ones who have to like march along all day and, you know, who are acting in this role. Whereas you have Mowgli who all of that is like a game, you know, like pretending to be a soldier, you know, sticking your nose out and everything. It's not like... You don't like, you know, he just thinks it's it's different to him. He's not really familiar with it. And so he treats it like it is a game. And and again, I think that works to further what you were saying, um, alienate and other the Indian people in right. this film and who they are in this film. And on top of that, as you're saying, like the 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 societal structures they're all mimicking are all very quote unquote western yes uh that could just be the fact that they're all voiced by like everyone in this is voiced by like american or british uh actors Mm -hmm. um but that choice alone when in when you're setting your movie in india to only cast white dudes uh it it, it sticks out Um, it does well as as great as all the voice performances are it sticks Mm -hmm. out and even like the notion of family and like all that stuff like you see it with the wolves in the beginning but then like even the way that the the girl at the end was singing about dad's hunting in the woods mom's home cooking i'm getting the water that felt very like even though you know it's not 
I don't I don't know what the right word to say about it, what the word I'm looking for is, but at the same time, like the, the the notion of gender roles and the existence of these gender roles, like I do this, mom does that, dad does that, in and of itself felt I wouldn't say Western necessarily, but just another one of those. And like even in the beginning with the wolves, you know, Bagheera was like, of course the mom was going to be fine with Mowgli, but it was the dad we had to worry about, you know, seeing. And the dad's on board with it too. Yeah, as easily like, as the as the mom wolf is. I'm right. um, just like one. Don't be. Don't assume. Don't assume. <laughs> don't Fuck assume. you. But Eat he shit. did. Eat uh, shit, Bagheera. <laughs> Do you not like Bagheera? Bagheera's just. <sighs> Bagheera's such a fucking square. <laughs> I think he is referred to as a square at one point. Him or Baloo. Someone was uh, referred to as a square. Baloo, not a square. Very much not a square. No, they, the monkeys called Baloo a square. Oh, uh, When they yeah. were stealing Mowgli. Oh, <laughs> uh, that, makes, that makes sense. Which, like, compared to the monkeys, I think, like, Bagheera and Baloo, yes, they are squares. Well, yeah, because, ooh, yeah, yeah. All the, the monkeys are a, a thing that happens. <laughs> a thing that happens um yep i'm trying to think i mean there's also part of the content warning right there i think the monkeys and the way they are depicted in the film are one of the biggest reasons for the content warning because whenever i bring up the jungle book and racial sensitivity that is what people mention daniel specifically brought it up in his interview there's a there's a disclaimer at the beginning of the jungle book the whole the racial um, the that disclaimer that everyone's talking about, and I did. <laughs> I remember that coming up, and I was shocked because I didn't remember anything in the Jungle Book, which obviously I didn't remember it anyway because I didn't like it as a child. But I was like, "What? What in the world could be in this movie that will necessitate this disclaimer?" And then we got to, um, I think it's the part with the monkeys. And Lindsay just leaned over and was like, that's why the disclaimer's there. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. All right, then. When we watched the film close to seven months later, Tara and I also picked up on the racial coding with the monkeys. Like, it it says something, it it feels real, real, real gross that um, all all the monkeys in in the jungle are uh, dancing to jazz and swing music. Mm Mm-hmm. And well, also, uh, when when Baloo quote unquote dresses and d- d- disguises himself as a monkey and ha- and puts the big coconut lips on, I'm like, ah, mm. oh, that's bad. That's bad. Yeah, but not everyone watched the movie and thought the content warning was about the monkeys. But like, yeah, the other things that like I I know people were upset about, I really wasn't that upset about. What would that be? Um, like the monkeys, like they have that whole. You know, that the whole disclaimer in the beginning of the movie that you can't pause to read or that's yeah, that yeah, you can't pause to read because it's like set for 12 seconds and it's like 12 seconds before the movie. So, Disney, if you're going to put a, um, a caveat before your films, don't put it on a time limit where most people won't notice it just saying because like i went to pause to read it and then it was already like 12 seconds was up so then i had to close the film and reopen it just for it to pull it up again so i could read it um but yeah i know like they put that like disclaimer in there because you know they're harmful stereotypes that are portrayed but you know 
I was telling you this earlier, like in the the week, is I feel like sometimes um, white people want to not appear racist, so they will try to catch things before it will make them seem racist. Um, and I don't think the monkeys in uh, Jungle Book are racist. I don't think, like, I think maybe because for so long we've associated, you know, monkeys with black people that maybe oh also I don't sound terribly black but I am um and I say that with like all the sarcasm in the world um but yeah I think because there's all like the negative stereotypes that come with like associating black people with monkeys that like you see the monkeys and then you're like yeah it's a a bunch of black people but then again like the voice actors are white every every monkey in the film is white um they're singing swing music which I guess because it's similar to jazz or like has its roots in jazz. That's why there's like the connection between, you know, the monkeys and black people. But um, King Louis is like a, was like a prominent Italian jazz singer from like the 40s or something like that. That was, um, that was a voice, that was the voice of King Louis, I looked it up. Unless King Louis is supposed to be able to play on Louis Armstrong, the, which then I could like, again, see like where the racism is coming in, mm-hmm. like, if like King Louis is supposed to be Louis Armstrong, but then you just didn't want to pay Louis Armstrong. Is the voice actor who did voice King Louis named Louis? Yeah, it's Louis Prima. And I was like, oh, I couldn't tell at first if he was like a white man or not, but he is a white man. He's Italian. So he's saying, you know, an olive skinned white man as you would hear in a romance novel. (laughs) 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 Um, But yeah, I think like, you know, I wasn't alive in the 60s, nor would I want to be. Um, And I didn't see, like, I almost said propaganda. I didn't see, like, the ad pushing for this movie or, like, the PR for this movie. So maybe, like, when they were, like, trying to promote this film, there was, like, more, like, racially insensitive undertones. But I don't think the monkeys are inherently racist. I think it's one of those things that, like, you know... Because you have, like, Steamboat Willie. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, like, you know, the other very problematic... Like, the crows in Dumbo, I think, are, like, a, an actual <laughs> problem or I something mean, like that. The one is named Jim Crow. Yeah. The main crow, and he's voiced by a white guy putting on a black scent. Yeah. So, like, there are actual, like, I think pre... What? I don't... I can't remember what age we're in. Are we in? Are we in the golden age still? Or? I don't know. Okay. Well, I think this is like maybe like right after the golden age. Maybe it's the silver age. Who knows? Oh, this is. Oh, you mean like Jungle Book? Yeah. Silver age. Yeah. So like we're like, like there's a lot of things that are like from the golden age and from like the silver age that are really problematic, and I don't think Jungle Book is one of them. I feel like Jungle Book has is problematic in the sense that like you were in India in the wild jungles of india or whatever and everyone in the film is british now if we go back in time and they had recorded this and everybody put on you know terrible indian accents we would be having a different podcast today where i'd be like what the fuck was walt's problem um but you know i like you you have the you have to kind of watch this film under like under the lens of like colonial british rule which is like definitely taking place um at this time 
even though like it's wrapped up in this like whimsical fantasy um story and it's also like a this is like a story that's like i think like you know from india that like you know disney was like and i'm gonna take that (laughs) and make that into a movie because it's like really whimsical and childlike and nice which i mean fair i don't think you can't share culture but you know so all in all content warning is more so depiction of india and the imperialism i feel like that i feel like that's the imperialism part that's like what's more like offensive to me Okay. Because I, because again, like to me, it doesn't seem like it was like terribly insensitive. I like again, I feel like it's one of those things of like Disney had to go through all of their films from like 1922 <laughs> to 1987 and be like, we did racist thing here, we did racist things here, we did ra-. like like the cats and Lady and the Tramp. That is like a good thing to be like content warning. Um, we kind of messed up with this one. Yeah, that makes sense. But like, I don't think the monkeys are in hand. Like, I think that's like what everybody jumps to because for so long in like, not even just America, but like the history of like the world, like monkeys have been associated with black people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like they saw monkeys, they heard them singing swing music, which I guess is derivative of, of jazz, and they were like, oh no, the blacks will be up in arms, so we must apologize before they can be up in arms which i was like don't do that (laughs) like don't anticipate how everybody's gonna react plus this movie has been out to the 60s if we have had negative feelings towards jungle book we have already said them so you putting it on disney plus is not going to change my opinion of the film yeah controversial take (laughs) you're gonna have a black person listen to this and be like she is wrong she does not speak for all of the blacks and you're right i don't um (laughs) I just, this is my personal thing as somebody who like watched it and then looked it up and was like, yeah. I knew all the words to all the songs. Yeah. See, that's the thing. That's you the say thing. That's a, you say that's a fun scene. Like, we, we say that kind of like dismissively. It's really fucking fun. It's really fun. It's great. Oh, it's so fun. I... One of the things I noted when watching this film, and I think it's because I felt a little like out of my depths in terms of like analyzing it and able to like watch it critically, but I felt the way I did as a kid when I watched it. And I think like the music has a lot to do with that. Just like, you know, with, um, especially with Bare Necessities and I Want to Be Like You, I don't know. I just, I knew all the words and I just was like smiling the whole time. And I was like, oh, this is a good, like, I remember this, you know, and all these moments, like the bananas, squirting the bananas out of the peel and like having them. I was like, I remember that. And then Baloo scratching his back on the tree. I was like, I I, have always wanted to feel that kind of relief in my life. And I never have. I can never get that relief. But man, I have, I have scratched my back on numerous trees because of that, because of that. (laughs) And it never Uh, felt the same. No, it doesn't because trees don't like scratch like that. They're just pain. Uh, In my, in my, in my notes during that scene, I wrote, but um, Baloo is a big fucking hippie, and I admire his vibes. But Bud, come on, there's a tiger out there. <laughs> he, I, I really liked him, especially in the way that he offsets Bagheera in the film. Uh huh. So when I was a kid, oh god, they have 
they have the biggest divorced dad's energy yes. I've ever seen. It's so good. I thought they were a couple when I was a kid before I actually like could, because un- I've seen that I've been watching this movie since I was like little, probably haven't seen it in more than 10 years. But like when I was young, it was like a weekly thing. And before I understood the concept of like couples, I just assumed that they were married. Yeah. I was like, no, they, because, because I think it's, you know, their personalities, I think have like, when you like think about couples in movies, especially like movies released around this time, their personalities mesh and clash in a way that is very stereotypical. You have like Bagheera, who's kind of like the overbearing, but like cares so much um, and freaks out about everything and is very like, you know, he like he comes in and like saves the day and all that. And then you just have Baloo, who's, you know, offsets the seriousness of Bagheera because he's just so happy-go-lucky and a hippie, like you said, um, but adds like the little bit of fun that Bagheera needs in his life to just kind of like let loose. And at the end, the last scene is them like, wrapping their arms around each other and like dancing off into the jungle. And I'm like, how Uh is that not like them riding off into the sunset together? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's because they're divorced. That's why. That's why I didn't, I didn't pick up on the divorce aspect, but I think that's that's a good take. Jenna also totally picked up on Baloo and Bagheera's vibes. Oh, Baloo and Bagheera. (laughs) Gay icons. Right. Um, yeah, they're gay icons. And I don't care what anybody says. They're two inter they're like two male interspecies animals in a relationship to raise a child. Yeah. Um, I don't care. <laughs> also, Blue's line of like, would you marry a panther? No, but well not Bagheera's line of would you marry a panther? And Blue's like, Well, a panther never asked. And I was like, that's the correct answer. <laughs> perfect answer for a perfect man we didn't explicitly talk about Baloo and Bagheera being divorced dads with Daniel but we did ask him who he thought the better parent was Bagheera is a bit of a jerk (laughs) because like he he comes out and he offers to take Mowgli from the wolf pack to save them and protect them and then he drops Mowgli at the first sign of trouble about four times over the course of the entire film. And I don't know that I remembered that as a kid. I probably was just like, oh, Bagheera. Uh, but as an adult who was, you know, had children and all that stuff, just like, wow, he just has no patience at all and is not fit to be taking care of a child at all. <laughs> Much less probably even than Baloo is. Well, out of the two of them, Baloo and Bagheera, who do you think is the most competent parent? <sighs> Pro- the most competent parent? I like. I know I just got done trash talking him, but probably Bagheera. Just because, you know, he knows what's out there. He knows how to keep Mowgli safe. And Baloo is just all about having fun. But I don't know. For making for putting Mowgli in a loving environment, probably Baloo, because Bagheera just drops him at the drop of a hat. No no chill whatsoever throughout <laughs> the entire thing. Well, yeah, because it's interesting. You have like that dynamic where you have like I feel like that's very cliche in any sort of like parental dynamic where there's two parental figures where you have like the competent logical you know all the ducks in a row kind of parent 
who may not be all that emotionally available, but then you have like the fun parent who lets the kid do whatever they want. And, you know, obviously that's the kid's favorite because they're like, oh, yes, this parent is the one who loves me, whereas this other one clearly doesn't understand me. Um, but it's just in the form of like a bear and a whatever a Bagheera is. I don't remember. What is he? Is he like a He's bob? a panther. He's a panther. He's a panther. A bear and a panther. Lindsay kept saying, that's the typical cat. It's just, <laughs> I'm done with you. Leaves. As a cat Comes owner. back running when trouble arrives. <laughs> yes. It's like, oh shoot, I left you there and now you're about <laughs> to die? Oh, how did this happen? Oh no, there's fire. <laughs> There's but, something about the way Baloo moves that, like, I, I, I would assume, like, you're, you, you've read some Calvin and Hobbes, at least, right? Yes. Yeah. Baloo moves the way I imagine Hobbes moves. Because mm. there's a couple of moments where he, Baloo's just kind of, like, it just makes, like, the, the stagnant, neutral, like, Hobbes face. And it just, and the way he's, like, kind of wobbly about it, wh- which is very funny because... I like my my reference point for cartoon tigers is Hobbes, and I compare him to Baloo instead of Shere Khan. Right, which I think makes sense because like when you, I mean, this is just talking about Hobbes, but Hobbes is like he's a teddy bear at the end of the day. Yeah, you know, he's exactly. not he's yeah. not a tiger. He's a teddy bear, and Baloo is like the definition of a teddy bear. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it's it's great. Uh man, but yeah, no loved. Bagheera and Baloo's dynamic. I just it's yeah, it's great and because when, like the, their their fight, uh, them fighting over whether or not they're gonna like actually take Mowgli to the man village and Baloo's like, okay, fine, fine, we'll do it in the morning. And Bagheera's like, it is morning, dipshit. Go tell him. <laughs> it's so good, and I think like that uh, it just works. I think that moment in the movie is so good and there's like a lot working in it just in terms of like the buildup of tension to that moment and the conversation that they have i think that worked really like it just it works so well that for me as a kid and even watching this movie today everything after that moment just kind of falls flat for me yeah yeah i think that's fair and i was thinking about it because i was because as a kid i never liked after that moment and on i never really liked the movie um and i was thinking about it and i realized like up until that moment like each scene does really well to ha- there's an action and then there's a consequence to that action that then motivates the action for the next next scene right so at the beginning of the movie um bagheera hears mowgli like the act you know this thing that isn't supposed to be there takes him to the to the wolves so the consequence of that is Mowgli grows up and the wolves have to kick him out, you know, so then like they leave, but then Mowgli is fighting it. You know, I think all that like really works well to build up. And then especially when Baloo comes in, right, when Bagheera and Mowgli's relationship is getting tense, that works really well. And after, but then I felt like the stakes just weren't <laughs> as high a- after that point. And I think a lot of it is because like up until that point, Mowgli's in danger, like in almost every scene. And it's, kind of like a buddy cop duo kind of film for Baloo, (laughs) mostly Bagheera, but for Baloo and Bagheera to kind of get him out of these situations. But in the following scenes, Mowgli pretty much holds his own. Like he's able to, I think by happenstance, get away from Ka, you know, and then with the vultures, 
that leads into the Shere Khan scene. And then, like, he pretty effortlessly, I would say, gets, you know, is able to scare Shere Khan away. Um, And then the movie just kind of, like, ends. So it's interesting because, like, I think that works well when looking back at it. It works well in terms of building up to the moment where Mowgli leaves for the man village because mm-hmm. in the first half of the movie you know he's still being coddled like he's a kid in those next two scenes he's come into his own he's acting a little bit more like a little more like a teenager you know like he's able to kind of do his own thing um and he's kind of asserting himself more showing that like he probably could survive in the jungle if he wanted to but he's lonely right that's kind of what we lead on even with the vultures he's still you know there's this moment of loneliness so when he makes the decision to leave it feels a little more it's still not a great ending i'm just gonna fundamentally disagree if you're gonna say it feels any if you're gonna say it feels natural at all for him to leave i fully disagree it doesn't feel natural but i think like if you really step back it, it it makes a little more sense i'm not saying it's a good ending but i think like that needed to happen in order for him to leave you know like he had to have these moments where he could do things on his own right in order for him to leave childhood which is him playing in the jungle all the time behind and step into manhood in the man village i don't (sighs) like it but i think that's what they were going for right i don't i i yeah like i get that's what i get that like i think that's what they're going for i don't buy it at all (laughs) because it's literally it's literally him proving to everyone around him that no i can fucking survive out here on my own it's Mm -hmm. fine i can stay here and baloo and bagheera acknowledge that like yeah okay maybe you can stay you can stay Mm -hmm. you can stay in the jungle with us it's fine you can handle yourself shere khan's been handled he's not gonna fuck with you again and you're only going to get more formidable as we go on. So, like, it's fine. You can stay here. And they're, like, literally going back into the jungle. And then, woman. <laughs> By pure happenstance, lady. Right. No, and that is the one action in the film that isn't result of some consequence from a previous action, right? Exactly. It is. So that's why it feels it, so yeah. out of place. It is deus ex lady. <laughs> deus ex woman i was also wondering how they got so close to the man village without realizing it yes couldn't tell you makes no sense and like why would if shere khan hates man so much why would he be so close to the man village he wouldn't it makes no sense (laughs) yeah that is it is literally just like oh look we're here because convenience well and also i was thinking about it and i think Bill Pete's ending makes more sense with this movie's beginning because the real like inciting incident that starts all this is the wolf council wolf's council being like he can't stay here and with Pete's ending he would have been Mowgli would have been part of the wolf's council yeah that initially said he couldn't be there he would have earned his place back with them yeah that made more sense yes Significantly but my more. bet is Walt was just very petty and was like, we need to come. This is a better ending. <laughs> so Tara and I were not happy with the end of the film, in case you couldn't tell. Jenna also felt this way. Oh, I didn't like how the movie ended. <laughs> Which I know, I, I think that's how, like, I think every version of the movie ends like that, where he kind of goes and lives with the humans in the human camp. Um, but I don't like that you have this... Um, you know, very headstrong little boy who is like, I can not take care of myself, but like with the proper guidance, I can figure out how to live in the jungle. I've, I've done it for the last 10 years. I don't know why I can't just continue. Um, 
see one human girl and is like, never mind, I shall leave the the forest because why why who needs jungle when woman and i'm like okay that's a little lame like i don't like yeah i didn't like that but again it's the 60s (laughs) so it makes sense for the time and i'm not and and maybe i need to read the book and maybe that's how the book ends too like he sees i can't remember her name because i don't think she has a name not in this one yeah she's in in the second one she does i don't know her name yeah so yeah, I don't really like how that ended. You gotta make sure the boys know we like girls. <laughs> we all have to grow up sometime and like women. We can't just like boy things for all our, for our lives. And it's dumb. Daniel had a different take when it came to the pacing of the film, as well as the ending. Um, I noticed, and I probably didn't notice this as a kid, but it's very episodic in nature, in the structure it's like there's an overarching story, but it's very much, you know, here's here's Mowgli with the wolves, and we fade to black. Here's Mowgli with Baloo, and we fade to black. Here's Mowgli with the monkeys. And, like, it seemed like probably four or five episodes of a TV show crammed together into a movie. Mm. Do you think that from, like, a storytelling, a... Um, like a like a like a pacing perspective that that works. I mean, for the story that they're telling, I think it does, but it does feel kind of disjointed because there's just like the weakest of strands through all of it. Just oh, we're taking Mowgli back to the village, and so uh, I mean, I don't know. I feel like it does serve the narrative well a little bit but maybe not so much because it just kind of distracts you from that but you're being distracted anyway by cute songs and action stuff like that right so it's almost like yes there is this thread of a plot that holds it all together but maybe that's not necessarily like the focus of the movie maybe or like they try to yeah, like yeah definitely okay okay out of until the very last episode when they find the man village and then Mowgli goes away with the girl that he just met and <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense it doesn't while the four of us had issues with the ending and the story that it told Morgan had a different take I feel like a broken record because <laughs> like I'm kind of like the same like with like Hercules like I just I feel like Mowgli's journey throughout like the whole film again is just a beautiful way to like show growth and like the human spirit and how um you can start off feeling like you're no different and not special and then find out like oh you're actually like the person to save the day yeah no that's pretty typical for a lot of our guests they usually have like a type of disney film that they gravitate more towards like Mm -hmm. you know one person really liked animal films that were more on like found family you know, some people like the Disney yeah. princess brand more. So, like, that checks out. And they they usually say the same thing. They're like, I feel like I said the same thing over and over again. And yeah. Like, oh, no, that's, that's okay. Like, typically that, that makes sense. Um, There's okay. a very specific Disney formula that will always get me. And it's like the hero who, like, is just like, oh, I'm just kind of doing whatever. And then it ends up being great. Okay. So that that's your that's your thing. That is your, yeah. that is your ideal Disney movie. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm.
And like, I feel like, I feel like they don't see it as a good ending if he's allowed to stay. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. as 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 Bagheera, who is who is positioned as the voice of reason, yes. He's also uh, the narrator, so yeah, he is positioned as the voice of reason and the narrator. So he's his, he like he is very clearly where our, where our sympathies are supposed to lie, mm-hmm. which becomes very difficult when he's like when he is insisting that birds of a feather must flock together, and then busts out the tired old line of "You wouldn't marry a panther, would you?" <laughs> to which Baloo, my new favorite queer icon, responds, "I don't know. No panthers ever asked me." Again, flirting. I'm just like, they are are so, (laughs) they are a couple, they are a couple. Yes, they, uh, yes, they absolutely are. It's great. It's so good. And then Baloo, not knowing how to talk to Mowgli, throws like all of what is like, uses the exact words that Bagheera uses to convince him, despite Bagheera having told him that like he's having trouble convincing Mowgli and he needs you to talk to him. And it's like, you wouldn't marry a panther, would you? And Mowgli's like, the fuck you talking about? It's fine. What? What is marriage? I'm a child. I was grow- I, I'm feral. I don't know what marriage is. <laughs> it's great. It's so funny. Baloo's incredible. I love Baloo so much. I do too. Like it's everyone, so like we, we, we've, this is a preview for much later down the line, but we've had people argue that Pleakley is a gay icon, a Blue. queer icon. <laughs> Blue out here, dressing in drag, willing to marry Panthers, it's gr- <laughs> like clearly in a r- domestic relationship with Bagheera. It's so good. Trying to, trying to be his best single dad out here. Blue is the true gay icon. Oh my goodness. Well, and in terms of the film, just, I think his personality, his lax demeanor, all of that, it's just, like, it's so refreshing, you know, especially to Bagheera's tight ass. <laughs> like, right. just everything is so regimented. Uh, I also want to highlight specifically, because mm-hmm. um, we haven't talked at all about the animation yet, mm-hmm. um, Baloo's character animation is the highlight of this film for You think me. so? Yes, because, like, when he's, when he, like, from when he shows up, he's like he is magnetic the entire time. Mm-hmm. Every time he's dancing, it's so lively, it's so vibrant. There's so much joy to all of his movements. But the 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 degradation, I would say, in like the 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 fluidity of his movements when they're having that fight, because like that the like the blue Bagheera fight is the highlight of the movie. Like it is yes. the, like it is it is that is the best part. And if that was the kind of shit that we were doing throughout this whole thing, if everything was that good, I'd feel much better about this movie. Mm. Um, when he is like he like as he is going from like carefree to like actually really fucking worried, there is a there is a very slow like slow not slow not slow because the scene's pretty quick um but a very noticeable and deliberate in terms of the animation degradation of his like control over his body language and he gets he gets stiffer he gets more scared he like and you can see it on his face and also in phil harris's voice which holy shit he's killing it in this movie he did such a good job just everything the like you could you could close your eyes and know exactly kind of the body language that Baloo would have and the emotion and everything that's going on 
you know yeah. that he's not explicitly saying like it's it is a phenomenal performance i agree yeah blue is probably the best acted character we've seen on a, in one of these in like the whole run so far And by yeah. acting, I'm include. I'm like by acting, I mean like the character animation, which is part of acting. Like yeah. character animators have to have a good sense of what physical acting is mm-hmm. in order to animate that well. Right. Coupled with Baloo, coupled with Phil Harris's voice performance, it's just it is, it is, it floors me every time. It's so good. It is really good. I love the way this movie looked just in general. Um, really, I did. How do you feel about like the the backgrounds? Like so, the environment design. I think that on their own, they're gorgeous. Um, I like, I was frustrated in the beginning that the credits were covering these like backgrounds because I just wanted to look at the backgrounds. I still don't know how I feel about the way the Xerox characters look against it. Mm-hmm. There are times where it felt a little out of place, specifically like when Shere Khan's like prowling through the grass Um like you could just tell it stood out a little bit like they didn't mesh as well you know like you think about yeah. um 101 dalmatians where the design of the background matches so well with the design of the characters right mm-hmm. um i appreciate the backgrounds for what they are i appreciate the characters for what they are but i still i guess for me it further just creates this setting as something fantastical and something that doesn't actually exist Mm -hmm. um you know kind of further exoticizing the concept of india itself you know making it not really like it's a place but it doesn't seem you know it's just you know it doesn't seem like anything specific um right but all in all i thought it was really i liked how it looked um for like those two pieces separately and i didn't and and the clash didn't really bother me as much but i I did notice it i can i can follow you on that yeah uh that waterfall at the beginning looks like utter shit it looks so (laughs) bad um because it it very much feels like stock footage just kind of slapped in between two planes of background animation well you know the waterfall was the only non-xerox thing they did yeah and boy it it, it it sticks out. out it looks bad um i think the scene like the scenery in the backgrounds are fine i think the character animation is way better than anything in the background mm. looks um which is the problem i i wrote in my notes that uh i wish this looked as good as bambi did mm. um because like this i feel like is the closest thing in terms of like setting that they've done to that mm-hmm. since then oh yeah um and it it's it's a shame that I have to compare this to Bambi because Bambi is like a, a high point in animation period. Mm-hmm. And then there's Jungle Book. Well, it's interesting because I think in terms of like the way that they animated like the just the green, like the grass, the trees, the shrubbery, like and like yeah. the intricacies of it reminded me of Bambi. Right. But there is this level of like. It reminds you a bit of that forest, but it's different. Which, like, it's a jungle. They're two completely different places in general. Um, but I think it was more... Like, the way I took it was... These animators have never been to India. They've probably just seen a couple pictures. So they just kind of let their imagination go with it. You know? Yeah. They were like, oh, let's just have fun with it. Um, yeah. So would you then prefer... 
a more cell style for this instead of- I mean, generally I would prefer more cell style over most of the Xerox stuff because I like the way Xerox handles characters. I don't like the way Xerox handles backgrounds necessarily. So then you would Um, want cell for the characters in this or like how how would it be more like Bambi? Like what- like what, what what would be different i think for me it really like i think it just comes down to a more unified stylistic decision in terms of like the background art and the character art mm. like if you're gonna do this kind of, like if the characters are going to look this kind of rough and sketchy just because of the nature of the animation style you're using i want the backgrounds to reflect it mm. but the backgrounds like but if you're going to do the disparate styles, you have to swing as hard as you can in mm-hmm. the other, other direction mm-hmm. and make the contrast as hard as you possibly can. So, like, I want it to look like Bambi in so much as I want the backgrounds to be as artistically rendered and as, like, formalist as the backgrounds in Bambi are. And, like, that's not what that's not what the studio was doing at the time. I understand that because they weren't as high on their own supply as they were when they were doing the initial run. So basically, I think what this comes down to for me is you should have paid to send your animators to India uh, and your background artists to India so they would actually like have like a good reference for what they're doing instead of just like, hey, look at this National Geographic issue where we where, like there's some pictures of India, maybe. Um, because there's no... Gar- like This is very nondescript, like what you assume is jungle kind of style. Um, mm-hmm. there's nothing that really designates it as quote unquote India, aside from the fact that like Mowgli is, is Brown yeah, and that they say, uh, they say this is India at the top of the movie. Um, yeah, but, the, and but I think also that- this is coming, this is coming, this is also coming from, uh, a, a white person living in Oklahoma who's like never been to like, a tropical South Asian cl- like climate. I could be entirely wrong, right? But I also feel like the backgrounds were drawn with the similar perspective to what I'm I'm channeling here. Mm-hmm. So like, I feel like they could have they could have done more, and they could have swung harder with the the design. Mm-hmm. Okay. Basically, I just wanted them to try harder. <laughs> do better be more bold make more big make better choices like not even better choices just make crazier choices right like if if everyone's feeling okay about the art choices that you made uh i'm not sure you made the right choice like that's kind of how i feel like if it's not divisive i don't know if you did the right idea well no that's the thing it is very non-divisive because even when you look at mowgli like like you said he's brown but like i would say his features are very much like wart Arthur in Sword in the Stone. You know, they look very similar. Um, Which I guess, like, you know, knowing Disney, they would have probably just done extremely exaggerated features at this time, you know, and it would have been not good either way. Yeah. Only one of our guests commented on the artistic choices and style in The Jungle Book. Generally speaking, Morgan really liked the way the movie looked. Oh, yeah. I love Jungle Book. I keep forgetting, like, all the... Like, I have so many favorites that, like, I'm like, oh, that's my favorite. And then somebody brings up another one. I'm like, oh, but that's my favorite. (laughs) All in different ways. I think this Jungle Book was just so much fun. And I just, again, like, I think that, like, the colors are just so vivid. And, like, all the different animals interacting with each other is just beautiful. And then it's another one where, like, the music is just on point. Mm -hmm. 
And I think like that's like a that's one of those films um, that like they reused a lot of the animation. Um, like they either reused it from that film or for that film. So like they reused animation from like Snow White and Robin Hood, I believe, to like cut down on um, animation time. I did think it was in, in interesting and a completely accidental indictment of um, British imperialism when uh, in the first uh, the first sequence with the the elephants on patrol and Mowgli's in there and like talks back to the colonel and the colonel says I'll have no man cub in my jungle and Mowgli responds it's not your jungle like. Completely accidental. Mm-hmm. That is not at all what Disney was intending, but I still think it's very fun to very very good for like the one Indian character, actually Indian character in this movie, to tell a symbol of British imperialism, essentially fuck off, you don't belong this is not your jungle alone. Well that was the thing too. Like I feel like like the the the, the, the elephants as a British imperial force here, right? As a military force are useless it's useless like that's the thing it's like they there's they're all pomp and circumstance nothing they do actually has consequence or works and i think the movie is very aware of that like when um the elephants are talking about their plan you know like one going down the the left flank and one going down the right flank or whatever and sheer Khan and then they like, just <laughs> yeah and it's like wow you guys really like and then also i think it's very self-aware in that like just Winifred and her, like, being so over the bullshit of the elephant military. She's just like, all we do is march. Like, what the heck? And I think everyone's kind of, like, all the elephants in the ranks are kind of aware that the colonel's kind of, like, is useless and just kind of, yeah. like, it, you know. But we see that, you know. They're not, like, a threatening force. They're not really something to be taken seriously. It's kind of more a moment to just kind of laugh at the absurdism of the yeah. pomp and circumstance that is tied with the military, right? On the topic of the absurdity of the elephants, when trying to make the herd a symbol of the British military, the creators of the film took some liberties and didn't paint an accurate picture of how elephant herds work. Jenna explains. Oh, the standout standout had to be the elephant ar- the elephant army. That's the standout for me. Why? It's just a good time. I love elephants. Elephants are like one of my favorite animals. So also elephants are hilarious. And um, I also just really enjoy the fact that, like, you can tell this movie was made in 1967 and it's using science that is very incorrect because you have this super staunch male general who's in charge, but who's ultimately a super big softie when it comes to his son. Um, But you have this, like, male general who's in charge, and that's literally not how elephant herds work how do elephant Uh, herds work they're like a matriarchy so like the females are in charge of the herds and like usually like bulls just aren't a part of the herd they just kind of just wander i could be completely wrong about that part but i just i but i do know that like females are the head of like herds of elephants interesting so i was like that was really funny so like it was funny that like he's trying to be so in charge but then when she's like if you don't help him get the boy I am taking the boy and leaving. The boy, in this case, being her son. Mm -hmm. And he was like, "Uh, well, we must now adjust (laughs) to find the small human boy. (laughs) So I thought that was, like, funny. 
and I think that is because you know, like the movie, like Mowgli sees it, you know, as a game. It's not, you know, it's not an yeah. actual institution with power behind it. So, like, what what yeah. happens to the military when you take the power away from it? It's just well, then yeah. Well, if you take the power away from a military, you're left with a bunch of nothing yeah exactly and so i thought like kind of going in that vein i thought that was kind of an interesting again i don't think it was intentional same with what you were mentioning but it's very much there you know who else is kind of a bunch of nothing but i love him anyways Mm. uh ka (laughs) okay again another talking about stellar performances the fucking sterling holloway hour becomes comes back i just sterling holloway we love we love the man I do not understand. It's been a hot his minute. His range. Like I don't either. He's so he's good. He's so good because like the la- the only character I can think of that he's done that comes remotely close to this is the Cheshire Cat. And but yes. he's not like off the wall crazy like the Cheshire Cat in this. No. He's sinister. He's he's got this he's got like Ka is all the sinister parts of the Cheshire Cat mm-hmm. without the charisma yes. and also a doormat. <laughs> But it's so good. It's incredible. It's great. It, Sterling Holloway can Sterling Holloway, anytime he shows up, complete delight. This like we fucking stan so hard here at here at Dream a Little Deeper Enterprises. <laughs> we stand so hard for Sterling Holloway. So for me, like Baloo was your big you know, like you were like, that's the best in the movie. And for me, like Blue was up there, but I think I don't know which would be higher. But Ka for me was pretty much up there because I was thinking about it and I was like, I cannot imagine any other voice actor being able to do this role like yeah. this and being able to have it play that line of sinister yet useless, um, a little bit menacing, but also silly and funny Uh like there's so like there's so many facets and it all works none of none of it clashes you know at moments when in the beginning when he's like about to eat Mowgli you're like ah and then you see how he completely becomes submissive whenever someone's like Uh and he's like oh (laughs) I was just I was just you know uh I think Ka would be higher for me if they didn't reuse massive amounts of his animation throughout the movie um because like we talked about it, the animation reuse didn't save them any money, but they keep doing it anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, him getting his ass kicked is the same sequence just twice. Yeah. The Foley work for him getting his ass kicked is hilariously oh, it's so bad. So good. It right. I'm, it's good because it's terrible. Yes. It's just stock sounds of him just get like creaky bed springs, just like a pipe organ just going. It's very funny, and it completely undercuts any sinister stuff that Holloway is bringing to the mm-hmm. role, which is needed, because you have to know that Ka's not an actual threat to Mowgli, yeah. because otherwise, holy shit, the snake is going to eat him. Well, that, and I think because Shere Khan is just kind of talked about and doesn't really show up until, like, the back third of the film, you yeah. know, I would say, like, Shere Khan didn't really even appear that sinister to me. So if you didn't have, like everything about the film working to make cough appear like a clown he would be like more uh-huh. sinister especially since he pulls up, he comes up twice yeah um i th- when i as a kid i thought it was funny that they reused the animation because to me i was like he doesn't learn his lesson he d- oh no it's, it's very, very funny. funny i so yeah. that didn't bother that's a, that's a good way of thinking about it i yeah. didn't that didn't bother me as much i just thought saw it as a gag like he just he keeps trying the same thing and he's never gonna he's never gonna get it 
he's going to get his ass beat in the same way every time. But on the topic of Shere Khan. Shere Khan is constantly threatening to put me in simp territory like Maleficent does. Um, yeah. Uh, I think the be- I think the best note I can I can illustrate that with is uh, Shere Khan singing "Oh my God" eyes emoji. His fucking voice, holy shit! That's what just oh my god that fucking that bass note right at the end. I'm just like, okay, hi, <laughs> hello. Uh, yeah, no, Shere Khan kind of rules. Okay. Um, it's a shame he's dispatched so easily. Yeah, because it undercuts any threat that he was like he's defeated by getting his tail pulled. That's basically what the deal That's is. All. And like, there's so much like, buildup to him too. I think the buildup yeah. is good. Like, I like how it starts with whispers, and then it starts with yes. like, you know, it's talk, and then you kind of just see him operating and like coming around. But then like, the fact that he was so easily defeated to me just undercut every fear everyone yes, had about absolutely. him. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and the fucking fake Disney death fake out bullshit just doesn't help with that. Like, you can't even kill the stupid bear. You can't even kill the stupid bear. Like, come on. Right. Just, uh, he ends up being no threat whatsoever, and it's wild. Like, really, Mowgli just beat him on the nose with a stick, set it on fire, and tied his tail to it. That's it. That's all it took. I also, for some reason, seem to have, like, a memory of, like, them burning a lot more shit down. Yes. Okay, I did, too. I thought that, like, like, it was a lot, like, he would be, like... Not like necessarily trapped in the fire like in Lion King two, but like I felt like it was a lot more dramatic than it actually was. Yeah. Like he, I thought I felt like at one point he got trapped by the fire, like Which, it swung like, over he, and like, he was like it, ah, and then he had to like move. Right, but like I don't know, like it's such a quick sequence that they don't really do anything with. Mm-hmm. It's it's a shame because Shere Khan is really cool. Shere Khan's really cool, uh, and I wish he was actually more could act on could could like actually act on the sinister vibes he's putting out. Yeah. Like on vibes alone, he's Maleficent level, but on execution, he is like one of the worst Disney villains we've seen to this point. Yeah, and I want him to be better. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I want Shere Khan to be mean to people. (laughs) Because he has, like, the very, like, calm, collected, calculating demeanor, and, like, you just know, like, just get him upset and he'll snap, and you're just waiting for that moment to happen. And then when it doesn't, you're just disappointed. Just because Tara and I, with our adult brains, felt Shere Khan missed the mark as a villain, doesn't mean he didn't have a terrifying impact on others. Here's Daniel again, talking about how Shere Khan and Ka made him hate the movie when he was a kid. I remember being absolutely terrified of the the antagonists of that movie. Like you had Ka the snake and Shere Khan, and I was just, no. I could not, especially with a snake. Like, I I don't like snakes anyway, and this was a snake that could hypnotize you and eat you while you didn't even know what was going on. And I was just, no, not about that life at all. And I remember that tainted 
Like, I don't... Watching it last night, I didn't remember much of the movie past that point. Past Khan, all his stuff, and then Shere Khan was just... Yeah. But, like, I didn't remember the ending at all. I'm assuming because I stopped watching it, probably. And probably ran off and did something else because I was six or seven. That makes sense. And then you said watching the movie again last night, it kind of like a lot of those like feelings that you had as a kid came back. So just kind of describe that experience and like what, like, was it still just the snake and Shere Khan or was it like, were there other things as well that stuck out to you? A lot of, a lot of what stuck out to me last night was just, I was like, why in the world was I afraid of this? as a kid because it was so silly kind of even Shere Khan who was intimidating as hell but just like he was just the the stereotypical British villain so why was that so terrifying to seven-year-old me and all I can all I can figure was just like I had that fear of the of the unknown and this time I came in with knowledge of you know, narrative structure and the knowledge that the movie was going to end up okay. Everybody was going to be okay. Because that's kind of just how Disney movies work like that. So it was definitely not not quite the, uh, the harrowing experience 30 years later. Let me just say also, I did not remember them tying the burning branch to Shere Khan's tail. But that seemed as... As a cat lover in life, that seemed remarkably cruel, <laughs> even for even for that. Uh, I mean, yeah, he's walking around trying to kill people and trying to kill animals and all that, but also, he's he's a cat. <laughs> it's the one part where it like falls down, like it flips over and falls down in front of him, and he's just like so terrified, like I I can't. That, that just that's just sad. <laughs> Why are we why are we terrifying the cat? Because he's the bad guy. <laughs> Duh. Because because he's the British voiced bad guy. Yes. Who has a lovely singing voice. Um and I guess to me again further makes that that like the last two se- three scenes of this film so does not work for me both as a kid and today like just there's no stakes it feels like um and also like again to further sort of create this theme that the jungle to Mowgli is just a playground you know like you never really get the sense that his life is in danger in this battle to him he's just playing hunter you know with a with a tiger you know because he's so easily like a kid what if he's four you know and like pretending to be the hero he just so easily defeats the villain his age is so oddly defined because at times i feel like he's six and then I mean, at the he's end a feral child at the end you're like he's like 13 <laughs> yeah he's a feral child shit didn't you know sit right I guess. The topic of Mowgli's age and how he acts also came up in our interview with Daniel. Right before this clip, we were talking about Mowgli's odd decision at the end of the movie to move into the man village because he saw a pretty girl. It's like, what is he, eight? Yeah, that's a good point. How old is he supposed to be? 
Who knows? I kind of get the feeling like it's it's a range throughout the whole story. Like sometimes he acts like he's maybe nine or ten and, you know, becoming fiercely independent. And then sometimes he acts like he's six or something. It's completely not not completely there. So, you, so it's it's not consistent then. It like jumps yeah. back. Okay. Can you think of I think like, Mowgli is as old as the narrative needs him to be at that moment. Literally about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you think of like like an example of where he seems like younger and then maybe where he seems like he might be like preteen sort of angst? <laughs> I think probably the the biggest example of him being younger is during the whole bare necessities sequence where he's just kind of playing and you know three sheets to the wind having fun and then you know we we go a little bit in the movie and then he's fighting you know he's facing off with Sher Khan which I know he doesn't actually like fight Sher Khan cuz that would end badly but you know he stands up to him, and I just don't think that a that a six to eight year old would stand up to a tiger <laughs> very well. I feel like probably like nine to eleven, maybe. But then again, you know he's raised by wolves. There is no kind of metric for how quickly he would be developing anyway. So maybe it works that way. Or maybe the writers were just like, ah, oh, he'll be six here, he'll be ten there, he'll be four again there. It just <laughs> doesn't matter. Well, he just, he just behaves the way that they need him to to move the story in the way that they want to. Right. Exactly. And so when he needs to be brave and standoffish with Shere Khan, he's brave and standoffish with Shere Khan. At the end of the day, it does feel like all, a bunch of fantasy play. Acting, it does, and that's kind of a bummer. It feels like I, I, Mowgli feel. Mm, I need to think of how to phrase okay. this because this could come across as a little bit bad. But Mowgli feels like a role that Peter Pan would take upon himself and like play act with the Lost Boys. Yeah. Like, this whole thing feels like a Peter Pan fantasy. Right. Like, there's no stakes. Khan is, like, Captain Hook levels of pushover, yeah. ultimately. Um, so, like, it really does feel like w- like this could be a Lost Boys fantasy mm-hmm. while, like, like on just a regular day. Right. No, I, I definitely get that. That's, those were, and I think that's probably why I enjoyed it as much as I did. And I think it's because, like, as a I, I had the memory of this as a kid and just being a fun film. And so that's kind of how I went into this. I was like, I'm just kind of here to have a good time. I'm not really looking for any, like, dramatic yeah. take on the Jungle Book, you know? And that's what I got. And so I think that's why I'm not yeah. as upset about it. I'm not upset either. It's just... I get bummed anytime they, like, tease me with actually good material yeah. and then shave off all of the edges. Right. Tara and I are talking about the plot and story in the film and how we ultimately felt that the movie fell flat because of the lack of stakes. That's what we took away from it. 
However, what sticks with a lot of people who watch this film is more so how they feel at the end of it. And these people are often pleased with the emotional notes the movie hits. Emily, who we've talked to in previous episodes, and her dad watched this movie a lot when she was a kid. And while she hasn't seen it in a while, that is what sticks with her. So when I was growing up, I had very adult taste in films, I guess. Like, my favorite movie to this day, and I started watching this when I was a toddler, is Planet of the Apes. Like, not normal stuff for little kids to watch. However, um, there were there was, like, a good, solid chunk of Disney movies that I would watch repeatedly with my dad. And so, to me, those movies are a reflection of my relationship with my dad. So, like, I am very deeply connected to the ones that I have spent time watching. These films that you watched with your dad, the ones that you've listed, would these be included in your list of like films that you genuinely enjoy? Yes. Why, why do you like these films? Like if like examples from each of them, like what about these films? Um, So the jungle book I feel was one of the first movies that made me like feel a range of emotion. Like even as a little kid, like it, I went from happy to scared to creeped out to happy again to like I feel like it it really runs it's runs through a lot of different emotions that are easy for kids to understand and adults um and of course like obviously when I was a little kid like I didn't know that it was based off of a book and all of that I thought it was just a cool story and that happened to have the same voice actor from Winnie the Pooh being totally different than normal um so that's like one thing that I really like about that one And funnily enough, directly in contrast to that, I fucking wish they'd gotten the Beatles. I so wish they had gotten the Beatles. It would have been so funny. The music that they played when the vulture scene started made it seem like the Beatles were about to come out and sing a song. That Uh is not, that is the the vibe that you're getting. And then they sing their song and you're like, I mean, all right, it's fun. But like, I mean, that's basically a Beatles song anyways. Uh, And also just the way they're talking. To each yeah. other, I'm like, y'all wrote this for the fucking Beatles, and you couldn't well, get them. Well, the designs are even based off of them. Yeah, so <laughs> it's so it's so fucking good. I w- oh god, it would like if they had gotten the Beatles, this might be like a like a top ten Disney movie just for watching the Beatles. <laughs> so also, this is just something I noticed, and it's because these are the two movies that like my childhood babysitter would bring over along with bed knobs and yeah. broomsticks and the rescuers and i'd watch them so much but cause first um sleep little man cub is to the tune that um the sheriff of nottingham's no that um the nazi or who or no robin hood sings rockabye sheriff in robbing robin hood because kago's interesting sleep little man cub and then Robin Hood goes, rah, oh, yeah. yeah. It's just the way that, like, the, like, that bit goes. I was like, yeah. okay, okay. So something to look out for in two episodes. Um, there was two moments where the frame rates were weird. I don't know if it was the same for you. Um, it might have just been, like, it could have just been, like, because it I could have st- just been your streaming stream. it. But it was when Baloo burst open the door at the monkey's uh uh-huh. ruins it doesn't like it like stopped and then like th- hit bagheera 
it was weird. Like, it didn't, like, do the full slam. I don't know. And then, um, when they were escaping the ruins, the way Bagheera, like, had Mowgli on his back and he, like, jumped or something, it, like, got really slow for a second. Like, it was, like, in slow motion and it kind of, like, but... It was very odd. Um, so that could have just that been... might have been your that might have been your stream. Okay. Those sound like buffering issues because I did not notice okay. either of those because they were very obvious on my end. Um, so it, that probably was it then. Um, I also thought it was interesting that Blue was the first character to actually call Mowgli by his name. Up until that point, everyone just called him Man Cub, right. and then like Blue had a bunch of nicknames for him. Um, I mean, I think that comes down to the fact that, like, everyone else is trying to get rid of yeah. him. Because they're, and they, they, they want what's best for him, but they need to keep that distance. Uh, because it's gonna, it's gonna hurt regardless, giving him, like, sending him yeah. away, but they want it to hurt less. So they're trying to, like, not necessarily dehumanize him, but, like, keep that separation of, like, you are just a, a man, co- you're, you're a child that is not supposed to be yes. here. Baloo has no such qualms. He's like, oh, uh, hey, dude. Be- <laughs> Hey, what's up, man? What's up, little dude? How you doing? How you been? You want to go float down a river? I got you. Don't get nabbed by monkeys. Ah, oh, shit, you got nabbed by monkeys. Oh, All right. <laughs> so it makes it makes sense for Baloo to be the one to call him by, by his mm-hmm. name. Um, The Bear Necessities gave me Hakuna Matata vibes. Yep, like, except it's better. Yeah, I agree. I had a lot of fun watching this. I didn't have as much fun watching Hakuna Matata as a kid, so... Yeah. Um, no. Let's see. Like, if you listen to like the lyrics of Bare Necessities, I'm like, oh my god, Blue, you're such a fucking hippie. <laughs> you're such a hippie. Again, I'm down with the vibes. I'm totally like, yeah. Like, if you don't ca- if you don't care about it, and it's not going to help you none. Don't fucking worry right. about it. Like, I get it. I get the vibes, Blue. I'm with you in spirit. But Blue, there's a tiger out there trying to eat the boy. Can we can we shape up for a little bit until the tiger's dealt with, please? And then he tries and. Excuse me. And then he tries and it just Completely doesn't. F- yeah. <laughs> Does not work. Um, Does not work. Did this movie feel oddly sexual to you at times? Uh, con- uh Ka's trying to fuck him. But like. <laughs> Ka's try- Ka yeah. is trying to rape him. Like yes. that is a thing. The way that Blue squirts the bananas into Mowgli's mouth also felt very. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. um, Yeah, I didn't think about that. I was writing during that. I was, like, writing and was trying not to pause it because I was already taking way too long with this movie. Um, So that part for me, especially with the two, I was like, okay. Like, the first one was enough. Like, I was like, yes. And then the two happened and I was like, okay. So that was weird. And then also, like, for me, the tree scratching felt like an orgasm. Yes. Yes. I absolutely... Like when Baloo like yes. jerks at the end and just like I'm like that bear just came <laughs> well even like with Khan like Shere Khan you like kind of get like a like he's like the Dom you know you kind of get that vibe from him and for me like adding all of this already into a setting that's supposed to take place in the jungles of India just kind of further yeah. made the place seemed like it was home to a quote savage people you know yeah. where like 
you know, like, everything's lawless and you just sort of, like, fuck for the carnal aspect of it, you know? Or at least, like, dance on those lines. Even if you don't, like, indulge. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the weird vibes I got. And I was like, I don't remember this. That's all from us this week. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review. You can find me at play underscore champion on Twitter. And you can find me at Alex underscore Isaac on Twitter. You can also follow the show at Dream Deeper Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can write into the show at dreamalittledeeperpod at gmail.com. Special thanks to our guests who took the time to talk to us about The Jungle Book. You can follow Daniel at SantoyVO on Twitter. You can hear more from Jenna on her podcast, The Opinionated Podcast. For show updates, follow The Opinionated Podcast underscore on Instagram. You can follow Diana's journey on Instagram at Diana E-Y-H-U and support Blackjack Rewrite Company on Facebook and Instagram. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily underscore Michelle. And as always, you can follow Morgan at Modane on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. Join us next time as we head to Paris for the Aristocats. Until then, dream on, silly dreamers.